Thank you, John. Would you open your Bibles with me as we read from God's Word this morning? Pastor Bruce continues his messages on the Ten Commandments. Today we'll be looking at Exodus chapter 20, the first 15 verses. If you look in your pew Bibles, it'll be on page 43. This morning, look at the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal. Again, we're in Exodus, 20th chapter, verses 1 through 15. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, not your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. Let's pray. God, we thank you again this morning for bringing us together, Lord. Now we just ask that you continue to use your word and God, your commandments to change our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Kirk, for leading us in our scripture reading. Thank you, John. Great song. Great job. Well, as most of you know, at least I hope most of you know, next Sunday is a uh, holiday weekend. It's uh, next Monday is July 4th, our Independence Day holiday, and so... I uh, just want to put a plug in for our next Sunday worship service. There's a no discovery hour. That is our, you know, for those of you that come at 9.30, there's no discovery hour. We just have one service next Sunday at 10.45. So if you come at 9.30, you can have meditation all to yourself for a whole hour. All right? I'll be here. The church will be open. You can come in and just meditate. So if you need a place of quiet for an hour, you come at 9.30. Otherwise, uh, just come at 1045 for our worship service, and it's a special worship service. I want to really encourage you to come next Sunday. Uh, we have a guest speaker coming in who is an author, and his uh, ministry right now is focused predominantly in Great Britain. Uh, he's the founder of Gospel Alive, and uh, you can read some of the bio in the bulletin there. And uh, his name is Del Peterson, and he'll be speaking next Sunday and kind of doing a, uh, a message on salute to America, kind of be a patriotic uh, service of sorts. And uh, so let me encourage you to come. Bring a friend, bring a family member. And uh, there's also, he's an author. He's just re- recently released a book, and you'll have an insert there that tells you about it. It's called Leave a Well in the Valley. And it's really a book that comes out of his life experiences of uh, tragedy, to be honest with you, and, I, and he probably will share a little bit about that. But if you've gone through life 
where you've experienced some disappointments, some doubts, some tragedy or whatever, and you just want some hope and encouragement in how to deal with it, how to handle it, uh, this book would be worth your while. Uh, it retails for $18.99. He'll have it here next Sunday uh, on sale for $15. And, and if you don't have the money, let me know. Man, I'll help you buy it, purchase it, whatever the case may be. So that's next Sunday, 1045 on, our, on July 3rd. So hope you'll be here. Hope to see you here. I know some will be out of town. Um, there's, I hear a wedding going on or something that some will be going to. Somebody's just looking at me. <laughs> so, all right, as we come to the Eighth Commandment, uh, we're in this series, for some of you that maybe not been with us the whole time, we're in the series on the Ten Commandments, and today we're going to dive into the Eighth Commandment. And what's interesting about the Eighth Commandment, it is so simple and straightforward, isn't it? I mean, you shall not steal. Who doesn't understand that? You shall not steal, and yet, it's amusing to me how dumb we can be when breaking this commandment. Right? A burglar broke into a house and began to steal all of the valuables. At that moment, he heard a voice that said, Jesus is watching you. He was so scared, he froze for a second. He regained his composure and started stealing again. And when the voice came louder, Jesus is watching you. He just about lost it right there. After regaining his composure again, he began to steal some more this time, watching very intent around him. When he heard the voice again this time, he recognized a shape in the corner as he approached what he realized was a birdcage. He removed the cover to find a parrot. He almost laughed. What is your name? The parrot replied, Moses. The thief then said, well, what kind of person would name a parrot Moses? The parrot replied, the same kind of person that named a Rottweiler Jesus. <laughs> now, I'm sure, you know, if you watch the evening news or you, hear, you see stories roaming around on the Internet, you've, you've all heard stories like this about dim-witted criminals. I like the one about the guy who was holding up a convenience store wearing a motorcycle helmet as a disguise. The only problem was that his name was written in big, bold letters across the front of the helmet. Police tracked this genius down very quickly. And, of course, you know, now with the high price of gasoline, the incidences of people stealing gas out of cars has increased dramatically here lately. I read about one young man who got a whole lot more than he bargained for when he tried to siphon gas from Dennis Quigley's mobile home in Seattle, Washington. When Dennis, inside the motorhome, heard the noises outside, he investigated and discovered the thief curled up on the ground, vomiting violently. Intending to suck up the contents of the gas tank, the thief had put his hose into the wrong hole, and he had sucked up the contents of the sewage tank instead. <laughs> The owner declined to press charges, saying it was the best laugh he'd ever had. You could say this young man learned the hard way that there are some very distasteful consequences to breaking the Eighth Commandment. Yes. Now again, like most other commandments that we've been looking at here for the last few weeks, the temptation right away for all of us, or at least for most of us here this morning, is to think that this particular commandment, you shall not steal... Oh, that doesn't apply to me. After all, the only thing you've ever stolen in your life is a candy bar from your brother or your sister 
or maybe a pen from the workplace, or maybe even here from church. No, you're allowed to take the pens in the back of the pews from church. That's what we have them there for. I mean, how, can, how bad can it be to take a pen from work and a piece of candy from your brother's room? I mean, most of us here, we don't really consider ourselves bank robbers and cat burglars or corporate embezzlers. We're more like the lady in the butcher in this Norman Rockwell painting coming up on the screen. It first appeared on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. The painting is called Tipping the Scales, and it shows a lady buying a turkey for Thanksgiving dinner from the butcher. And the two of them, if you look more closely, they're rather pleased with themselves while looking at the scale. But the painting shows that they are what they're secretly doing. The butcher is pressing the scale down to raise the price, while at the same time, the lady is trying to get a better deal by pushing the scale up with her finger. And the reason that both of them look so pleased that neither is aware of what the other person is doing. And of course, in typical Rockwell style, the painting is a, quote, you know, charming scene from our American pastime that kind of makes us chuckle. But really, what the lady and the butcher were doing was breaking the Eighth Commandment. In his book on the Ten Commandments, Cecil Myers makes this comment on this very painting. He says, and I quote, Both the butcher and the lady would resent being called thieves. The lovely lady would never rob a bank or steal a car. The butcher would be indignant if anyone accused him of stealing. And if a customer gave him a bad check, he would call the police. But neither saw anything wrong with a little deception that would make a few cents for the one or save a few cents for the other. But in a word, they were both what? Stealing. So here's a question for all of us to answer immediately at the beginning of this message. And that is, are you on the take? Are you on the take? Now before you answer that question, notice God's standard for all of us here. It's coming up on the screen, or if you want to fill in the notes there in your bulletin insert... God demands 100% honesty 100% of the time. And anything less is considered stealing. So now maybe we can answer the question a little better. Am I on the take? Let's be honest. 100% honesty 100% of the time, that's not an easy thing to do all the time. Most of the time, I feel like I can handle 70% honesty about 85% of the time, or perhaps 90% honesty at maybe 65% of the time. In fact, graded on a curve, I think my honesty is far above most people's, right? Maybe you think yourself the same way. But God is not satisfied with good effort, partial honesty, better than most people most of the time. So it's easy for us to overlook this Eighth Commandment. But as we're going to see, it's even easier to break more than we realize. So let's answer a question here. What's wrong with stealing? What exactly is wrong with stealing? Most of us know that it's wrong, but why is it wrong? Notice the first point here. Stealing is wrong because, first and foremost, it's a violation of God's authority. It's a violation of God's law right here in the Eighth Commandment. Everyone knows that stealing is wrong. Even people who don't read the Bible know 
you shall not steal, is part of the Ten Commandments. History has proven that without this commandment, no society can, can function very well. Why? Well, if you feel free to claim what is mine, and I feel free to claim what is yours, let me tell you, we're not going to be able to live together very long. We're going to be enemies, each eyeing each other's stuff with suspicion, waiting for our chance to steal from each other. And so no family, no city, no country can survive long where the Eighth Commandment is not widely respected and even enforced. God says in the Eighth Commandment very clearly, you shall not steal. Now what is stealing? Most of us have a basic understanding of what stealing is, but let me give you a very simple definition here. You notice it on the screen. Stealing is unlawfully taking something that doesn't belong to you. Now that's simple enough. The Hebrew word for stealing literally means to carry something away as if by stealth. As if you're doing it secretly because you know it's the wrong thing to do. Stealing, this Hebrew word for stealing covers all types of theft. Every type of theft you can imagine, it covers it, such as burglary, which is breaking into a home or building to commit theft. Robbery, I mean, what's the difference? Well, robbery is taking property directly from another using violence or intimidation. It includes larceny, which is taking something without permission and not returning it. Hijacking, using force to take goods in transit or seizing control of a bus, truck, plane, automobile, etc. Even includes shoplifting, pickpocketing, and purse snatching. This word stealing here, it also covers a wide range of exotic and complex thefts, such as embezzlement, Distortion in racketeering. Now, this is only a partial list of the countless ways people violate God's authority or His law in the Eighth Commandment. In fact, stealing is so prevalent among our culture today that most people think it's no big deal to pilfer public property. Stealing supplies from hospitals, schools, building sites, and hotels. In fact, it's interesting, one hotel reported in its first year business of having to replace, get this, 38,000 spoons, 18,000 towels, 355 coffee pots, and 100 Bibles. Yeah, I guess they didn't read Exodus 20 there, did they? (laughs) And then there's also the growing problem of shoplifting. You know, the five-finger discount. According to the National Association for Shoplifting Prevention website, More than $13 billion worth of goods are stolen from retailers each year. There are approximately 27 million shoplifters in our nation today. To give you an idea of really how many people that is, that is approximately one for every 11 people in our nation. One out of every 11 is a shoplifter or has been at one point or a time. That means the next time you go to Walmart, realize that of the 500 people they're shopping, about 45 of them are there shoplifting. Why? Well, in simple and concise terms, to get something for nothing. All the old ways of stealing are still here, and now we've even invented new ways to steal too. Now there's tax fraud. We have Insurance fraud, we have securities fraud, internet fraud, and identity theft, just to name a few. We can now steal on a far more massive scale 
than the Israelites could have ever imagined when God gave them this eighth commandment. There are countless ways to steal, countless ways to break this commandment. Here's even a few ways in which even the most pious person may be a thief. How about the government thief who underpays their taxes or makes false claims for disability and social security? How about the work thief who calls in sick when they want a day off or they pad the expense account or they steal supplies or merchandise? Or how about the credit thief? You're like, what's that? Well, that's a thief who defaults on their loans and credit cards, doesn't pay their bills. How about the reputation thief who steals someone's good name with gossip? How about the immorality thief who steals the purity of another person or steals the affection of somebody else's spouse? How about the careless thief who borrows things but doesn't return or who borrows money but doesn't pay back? Or how about the God-robbing thief who robs God of that which belongs to him? You see, look around you. You may be sitting next to a thief right now. Better yet, look in the mirror. Because let me tell you, we are all in on the take. The truth is that stealing is pervasive at every level of society. That's why you lock your doors at night. That's why you lock your car doors before you go into the store. That's why you have passwords on your computer. And it's why our church even has a security system. As Martin Luther once said, if we look at mankind in all its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable full of great thieves. In other words, what he's saying is the whole human race is a band of thieves. So what's wrong with stealing? Well, first and foremost, it's a violation of what God has said to us. It's a violation of his authority in which he has given us his law in the Eighth Commandment. But there's a second reason why stealing is wrong. Number two, stealing is an assault on human dignity. It's an assault on human dignity. You see, the Bible, believe it or not, dignifies personal property. And it roots this dignity in the image of God. Therefore, to steal from a human being is not merely to steal his or her possessions, it is also to assault their dignity as a person who has been made in the image of God and who has been given the right of ownership by God. As Alistair Begg, who's a pastor and author, as he writes in his book on the Ten Commandments, he says, any attempt to deny or to diminish the significance of private personal ownership fails to recognize that God has put us together in such a way that part of our human dignity is wrapped up in our desire for and need of this right of exclusive possession. You say, well, what what does all this mean? Well, it means, notice this in your notes here, it means the Eighth Commandment protects the personal right of property. It protects the right of personal property and thus recognizes human dignity. You see, God does not forbid the right of private ownership. I'm thankful for that, right? God doesn't forbid it. In fact, God establishes it, and then he protects it in this Eighth Commandment. Otherwise, the whole concept of stealing would fail to make any sense. I mean, only something that belongs to someone can be stolen. But the reason that anything belongs to anyone is because, listen, it comes from God 
himself. We do not have the right to take for ourselves what God has graciously given to others. And whether money or possessions becomes ours as a result of inheritance or a gift or as a result of honest work, we learn in James 1.17 that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. So it is God who grants us the ability to get wealth and to acquire and accumulate possessions. And consequently, when we steal from someone, we not only sin against that person, but we are sinning against God as well. You see, because God establishes the right of ownership, He now protects that right with His law against stealing. In fact, stealing... If you do a study in the Old Testament, and we don't have time to do that, but it was severely penalized, primarily through stiff restitution. Let me give you just a few examples here. You can go to Exodus 22, verses 1 through 4. And if someone stole somebody else's sheep or oxen, the required restitution was four sheep and five oxen. But if the original animal that was stolen was recovered, then the restitution was simply doubled. According to Numbers 5-7, fraud against another person required full restitution plus one-fifth of the full value of what was taken. In Deuteronomy 24-7, if you kidnap someone, well, the penalty there, what do you think it was? It was death. You get the idea. God hates stealing. Why? It's an assault on our dignity. It's a crime of great consequence. Now, does this emphasis seem somewhat strange to you? I mean, our stuff is, well, it's just stuff, right? And yet, if we're really honest, we know that it is never just stuff. It's my stuff. You see, you've got your stuff, I've got my stuff, and God says, listen, don't take somebody else's stuff. So we borrow people's stuff with the expectation that we will return it. When we are invited to someone's home, the expectation is that we will not steal their stuff. Our houses are filled with stuff. In fact, most of us have so much stuff, we can't even park our cars in the garage. And still, we have a hard time letting go of our stuff. And yet the Bible, this is what's so amazing, dignifies it all by establishing the right to personal property. The right to own what is lawfully yours. The right to the work of your hands or the yield of your investment. Which brings us to the third reason why God forbids stealing. It's a rejection of my stewardship. Stealing is a rejection of my stewardship. Now this brings us to a biblical concept that some of you may be aware of, some of you may not be. But stewardship means that all this stuff that we think is ours is really not ours at all. It's God's stuff, and He's just entrusted it to us. Psalm 24, verse 1, reminds us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. This brings us to the positive side of the Eighth Commandment. You see, what the Bible means by ownership is not possessing things to simply use for our purposes, to use to build our kingdoms. 
But receiving things from God, in other words, is to be used for His glory and other people's good. So at the same time that we are forbidden to take things that don't belong to us, we are required to use what we have in ways that are pleasing to our Heavenly Father. To put it very simply, notice this in your notes, the Eighth Commandment, it isn't just about protecting the right of ownership. It's true, it does that. But the Eighth Commandment is also about promoting the responsibility of stewardship. And this is what most people fail to understand when it comes to the Eighth Commandment. You say, what is a steward? Well, a steward is simply someone who cares for, they take care of, or they manage someone else's property. He's not there to use it however he pleases, but only to manage it in accordance with his master's intentions. This is our situation in which we're living in even today. Whatever we possess, get this, is not really yours. It's God's property, and he's given it to us, or he's given us the sacred trust of looking after it. This is the way it's been since the beginning. You can go all the way back to Genesis with Adam. Did you realize Adam did not own any property? He just managed it. As Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And like Adam, God has called us to be good stewards of the things he has entrusted to us. So stealing is a sin against God, and it's a rejection of my stewardship in which God has given me. Think about it. At the heart of every theft is a failure to trust in the provision of God. The bottom line, at the heart of every theft, it is a failure on that person who is stealing to trust in God's provision for their life. Whenever we take something that doesn't belong to us, we are outwardly denying that God has given us or is able to give us everything we truly need in life. The truth is, every time we steal something, we are saying, man, I'm going to be my own provider in life. And if I don't take it now, I'm going to be the loser in this. But the Lord wants us to understand that when we place our trust fully in Him, we are never the loser. Therefore, keeping the Eighth Commandment, it's really a practical exercise of our faith in God's provision for our lives. You see, God gave us this commandment to spare us. In some regards, he gave this commandment to spare us from the humiliation and the damage stealing can cause us and even our families and those around us. In his mercy, God wants to spare us from the high price of stealing. There's consequences. There's a price to be paid. And if you don't believe stealing is costly, just ask Achan and his family. Do you remember Achan? Go to the book of Joshua and you can read about Achan in Joshua chapter 6 and 7. There are many thieves in the Bible, but the most audacious thief in all the Bible was none other than Achan. Achan was a soldier in Israel's army who fought in the battle of Jericho. And on the morning of that famous victory, the Lord told the people of Israel that all the goods, all the spoils from the battle of Jericho were to be devoted to him. 
anything of value was to go into the Lord's treasury. And there could be no misunderstanding God's instructions to all the nation of Israel. In Joshua chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, listen to the instructions God gives. He says, the city, referring to Jericho, and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. So immediately we see that in this case, breaking the Eighth Commandment didn't just bring harm and damage to one person. God's saying, listen, you're going to bring harm and trouble to the whole nation. And trouble is exactly what came. Some of you remember the story when Achan deliberately violated that clear command. What did he do? Well, in the aftermath of the Battle of Jericho, Achan's rummaging around through the wreckage. And his heart was captured by the city's treasure, the city's spoils, the gold, the silver, the fancy clothes. And the more treasure he saw with the eyes, the more treasure he wanted. And so he started thinking how he could somehow smuggle that treasure home and perhaps hide it in his tent. And then he decided to go for it. Here's what Achan had to say after he was caught in Joshua 7, 20 and 21. He says, this is what I have done. When I saw on the plunder a beautiful robe for Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent. You see, rather than waiting on God to supply what he desired, Achan took what did not belong to him, and it brought a stunning defeat to the army of Israel. Instead of marching across the promised land on a tour of victory, the Lord's army stumbled in the very next battle. They stumbled over the sin, get this, of one man. That's amazing. The sin of one man caused the whole army to stumble in defeat at the battle of Ai. What's ironic is shortly before he died, Moses told the Israelites that if they obeyed God, And God's just given them the Ten Commandments. If God would just, well, actually 40 years earlier he did. But if if they would just obey God and his laws, that the Lord would give them the promised land. But he also warned them in Numbers 32, 23, he says, But if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord. And then he says this little phrase that so many parents like to tell their children. And you may be sure that your sin will find you out. That little phrase, we need to be reminded of that too as adults. That's exactly what happened to Achan. His sin found him out. And it brought a death sentence on him and his family. In fact, Joshua 7, 24 and 25 tells us that Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, his donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said to him, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord now will bring trouble on you today. And then the very next phrase, it says, then all Israel stoned him, along with his family, his sheep, his cattle, and all that he possessed. You see, Achan lost everything, 
including his life, all for the sake of some ill-gotten treasure. What didn't, what Achan didn't know, and this is what just, what so many of us, and even myself, what we fail to realize, we're so much like Achan here, because what Achan didn't know was that just a few days later, God would have provided him with more than his meager hall of treasure at Jericho. In the very next battle, God permitted all of the plunder, all of the treasure, all of the spoils to go to who? The troops. Israel got it. All of it. Had Achan only waited, had he only obeyed and trusted God, Achan's family might have been blessed so much more abundantly. This whole account, it seems to speak about obeying God first and foremost, and then trusting God's timing and His provision in our lives. And not running ahead of God to grab our own happiness, to grab our own comfort and security through stuff. You see, Achan's sin and its punishment, its consequences, listen, it stands as a great warning to anyone who steals anything that belongs to the Lord. Most of us here, if we were to have a conversation, and I ask you, do you steal from God? Most of us say, no, no, I don't steal from God. I'd, probably, I'd say the same thing. Most of us, if not all of us, we would deny that we steal from God. We would deny it the way the Israelites denied it in the days of Malachi. The prophet asked the Israelites, would you rob God? You know what their answer was? What, what, what are you talking about? But if the prophet Malachi came to us now and he asked us the same question, would you rob God? Listen, our honest answer must be, oh, yes, we do. We rob God of the praise due his name. We rob God of the worship that is his proper expectation when we don't live for him with our lives. We rob God of time and talent that we invest in lesser things. We rob God of possessions and money when we fail to give back to Him. We rob God of priorities and passions when focused on the kingdom of this earth instead of the eternal kingdom of our Lord. We rob God all the time. We don't just don't know it. We don't realize it. So perhaps we should stop and ask ourselves the question, am I a thief? I'm not talking about a bank robber thief. I'm just talking about a God robber thief. Am I a thief? You see, one of the benefits, in case you haven't figured it out by now, of studying the Ten Commandments, and maybe it's not a benefit, is that it confronts us with our sin, doesn't it? It really is a benefit. It's a hard benefit to accept. But that's one of the purposes of these Ten Commandments. Is it, it, it's, it just slaps us upside the face. It shakes us and says, wake up your eyes. Wake up your heart. Get a clue. We all break these commandments. This means that even on my best day, I have to admit, you know what? I'm a thief who lives at the level of, oh, maybe 80% honesty. But 80% honesty isn't good enough with God. 
So is there any hope for living a life of integrity? Because the opposite of dishonesty is what? It's honesty. It's integrity. It's living outwardly what we believe in our hearts and minds. Is there any hope for a life of integrity? And yes, there is. God's Word, and we can't go into this in detail, but God's Word shows us a four-step plan to beginning to live a life of integrity. Let me share it with you here. Steps to a life of integrity. Step number one is, first of all, stop stealing and make restitution when possible. Stop stealing and make restitution when possible. Now, a good example of this would be who in the New Testament? The Gospels. Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus? He was the dishonest tax collector who was hated by his Jewish uh, brethren for all his legalized tax thefts. But then one day, let me tell you, something amazing happens to his life. One day he meets Jesus, who radically changed his life. And in Luke 19, 8, Zacchaeus says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And then Jesus says something in verse 9 that just confirms the radical change that took place in Zacchaeus' heart. Jesus says, salvation has come to this man's house. Now, this is the opposite of the guy who felt guilty about cheating the IRS. And so he sent them $500 with a letter in the mail. The letter stated, I've cheated the IRS. Here's $500. P.S. If I still feel guilty, I'll send the rest later. Listen, that's not a life of integrity. That's not making full restitution. A life of integrity, it begins with regeneration in the heart, the life. It begins with salvation that only Jesus Christ can bring to us. And it results in a life of change. And in this case, it means that we stop stealing and we make restitution when possible. You know what's amazing? is even the court systems here in America understand the concept of making restitution. You say, well, why? What are you talking about? Why do you say that? Well, as some of you may know, in 2003, our church was broken into and robbed three times in a matter of four weeks. It was, uh, if I remember right, it was a band of four, four people. An 18-year-old, 17-year-old, and two 16-year-olds, I think. Two of them were guys, two girls. And uh, we weren't the only church. There were a few other churches, a dentist office, and then some homes that all got by the, robbed by the same group. Well, they caught them. They thought they were going to get away, but they caught them. Their sin found them out. And, uh, and so, in fact, I, had, I got called down to the North Patrol police office. I had to go identify some of the things that were stolen and even got back my computer, although it was busted up and everything. But here's the thing I want to make emphasis on this, on this point of restitution. Lo and behold, you know, we, and we, you know of course, the, the, they pressed charges and they, they uh, had to go to court and everything. And, and we, you know, I just, you forget about it, you go on, and all of a sudden, Kim gets in, in the church mail this, ch- this letter and a check from the courthouse and everything. And what it was, it was those guys making restitution. It wasn't a big amount, but it was a, it was a check of amount of money. Why? Because the court caught them and forced them to make restitution. Now, how much more should we, who are part of the family of God, believers here? And that's what Zacchaeus did. He wanted to make it right. 
So it's the first step. Step number two is start working for an honest living. Start working. Now, again, the Bible is so clear on just the practical things in our daily life. You can go to Ephesians chapter 4, 28. Listen to the words of Paul here. It says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer. What does that mean? Stop stealing. And then Paul goes on and says, but must work. Do something useful with his hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Proverbs 6, verses 10 through 11, teaches that laziness leads to poverty. Now, that's not the only cause of poverty, of course, but it's one of them. And according to Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 through 9, poverty, in turn, brings the temptation to steal. So one obvious way to avoid this temptation is to what? It's to work hard for an honest living, for honest gain. Number three, a third step, is to start giving to God and others. It's to start giving to God and others. Now think about this with me. The whole essence of Christian living is a life of giving. What is the essence of thievery? It's a life of stealing. It's a life of getting something for nothing. And so you have the Christian life, which is giving. Thievery is a life of trying to get. We don't work simply to satisfy our own desire. This is not to say that we can never enjoy what God has given us, but we are called to give back to God and to provide for others. Again, if I can go back to the prophet Malachi, when he told the Israelites that they were robbing God, they were deeply offended by it. They asked him in verse 8, How do we rob him? And God answers them in verse 9 and 10. Listen to what he says. In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Now this mentions the word tithe, and tithe... Uh, technically means what? 10%. And this is a, use, a useful guide uh, in, our, in our giving. But since we're no longer under law in the Old Testament, we are now living under grace here in the New Testament, this means we now are free to give generously. Do you know what else this means? It means you're free to give more than 10%. <laughs> and yes, you're free to give less than 10 too. The tithe is a great starting point, is what I tell people. Great place to start in our giving. And if you really want to be blessed by God, then test it. Hey, give more. In fact, we give proportionally to how God has blessed us. And the more we give, the more God will bless us, he promises. And so the principle here is whatever amount you choose to give is to start giving first and foremost to God and to be generous in helping others and providing for others as well. And then the last Step. Step number four is to start trusting God and be content with his provision. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6 reminds us, it says this, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Again, the reason people steal is because they've either forgotten about God, or they have just outright forsaken God. 
And they believe now that their lives, their future, lies in their own hands. I've got to do something about it. And since I'm not going to work or I, I, I'm not able to work or whatever the case may be or I don't make enough money to, in what I get, I've got to go beyond that. But when you know that God is your provider, listen, it changes everything. It changes your heart. It changes the way you live. And it certainly changes the way you view your possessions as well as other people's possessions. Now, all of this brings us to one last question when it comes to this eighth commandment. And the question is this. Can a thief be redeemed? Can a thief be redeemed? And of course, we know the answer is yes already from the example of Zacchaeus. But I want to point you to another example. That Jesus died on the cross between two thieves so that every thief who trusts in him will be saved. The Bible says that when Jesus was crucified, two thieves were crucified with him. One on the right and one on the left. And one of the thieves cried out to Jesus in Luke 23, 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus gave him an answer that he gives to every thief who turns to him in repentance and faith. In verse 43, when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, get this. Jesus said those remarkable words, not to a good man, not even to a religious man, but to a thief who was paying the ultimate price for his thievery. Can a dishonest thief be redeemed? Man, we better hope so, because we're all thieves here this morning. The answer to the question is absolutely. Isaiah 53, 12 says that Jesus was numbered among the transgressors. Here's a simple way of saying that. Jesus was numbered with the thieves so that a thief like me could be redeemed. I'm thankful for that. I hope you are too. So here's the most important question that we need to end this whole message on. The most important question that we can ask and that we can answer, and it's a question you have to answer for yourself, is have you been redeemed? Have you turned to Jesus in repentance and faith? And if not, can I be so bold as to ask why not? Listen, what are you waiting for? What's holding you back from receiving God's gift of forgiveness? What's holding you back from receiving His gift of eternal life? And what's holding you back from receiving His gift of a new life, even here now, in this earth? Have you been redeemed? Have you turned to Jesus in repentance and faith? With your heads bowed. And as we come to our response time, Again, we're at that place in our service where it's an opportunity for us to respond to God's Word, to respond to the truth, to evaluate our own lives, to look at our hearts with the help of God, and if need be, to run to the cross to seek His forgiveness.
And perhaps you're here and you've never been redeemed. You have yet to come to Christ in repentance and faith and receive Him as your Savior. Let me encourage you to cry out to Him even now. Right where you're sitting, run to Jesus and pray and ask Him to forgive you and invite Him into your life to be the Lord and Savior. And He will do just that. Will you respond as you see fit as they sing? The cross of Christ.